you, Lord. I just come to you this morning thanking you for all your goodness, all your care for your children all over the world. We know that there are many that are hurting that we know about, many that we don't even know about that are hurting in so many different ways. People who are struggling to have a chance to get together to worship you in countries where there's so much oppression. We pray for those people. And Lord, I just pray for the peace of Israel, that you will be with your children there and shed the light of your truth on them. And I just pray for the ones in our community that are suffering, the ones in this class, the ones that have brought requests before us today to pray for. And Lord, like Sharon said, let, let us count it a privilege to wear those people on our sleeves, to keep them in our minds, to pray for them and to pray for each other for strength and for faith to just believe your promises because your word is so full of promises to us, your children. And we are so thankful for that, Lord, because we know you're our hope and our glory. And we know no matter what happens to us here, in this short time on earth, although sometimes it can seem very long and trying, that you are always with us and that you are always mindful of us and that you always will never take your hand off of us. And Lord, we thank you for these blessings and we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Ann. Well, we've said that in Matthew's gospel, we see a gospel portrait of Jesus as king. And so I want to begin today by talking for a few minutes about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we use that phrase a lot, and I want to be sure that we understand, that we grasp what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. The phrase kingdom of heaven is found 32 times in Matthew's gospel the kingdom of God is found five times. They're the same thing. But in the New Testament, the word kingdom means rule or authority instead of a specific place or a specific realm. Um, you read C.S. Lewis, you read of the kingdom of Narnia. Uh, you hear of the United Kingdom. And those have to do with geographic locations. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is not like that. Um, the phrase kingdom of heaven refers to the rule of, or authority of God. And because the Jews were so careful about uttering God's name, you know, even today, Orthodox Jews won't say God's name out loud. They will say something else. And so that was their heritage. And even in the New Testament, so they were so fearful of saying God, they would say kingdom of heaven. And so they both mean the same thing. And, um, they would just substitute that word heaven. But we're talking about the rule of God. Now, the Jewish leaders, you'll remember, wanted to 
um, have a political leader who would deliver them from Rome. And here comes King Jesus to bring spiritual rule instead of political rule. He wants the rule, the hearts of people. So right here in the midst of mankind, even today where we are, there are two kingdoms. We're in the midst of two kingdoms. And in my mind, I have the kingdom of the world, which is this whole big thing. Then all tucked throughout the kingdom of the world is the kingdom of heaven. And so if you were to be able to look at it from space, you would see the kingdom of the world, but then all of these little lights everywhere all over the world. And that would represent the kingdom of heaven. It's not a geographical place. It is the rule of God. It would be the light of the people whose lives are ruled by the Lord. So Jesus said, you are in the world, but you are not of the world. So Christians are not of the world. Christians are of the kingdom. And so I, I just have realized in more recent years of my life that I need to be more kingdom-minded. It's not about always just a local congregation or a certain church or a group of people or a denomination. It's about the kingdom. Those people who are under the rule of the Lord. Because Jesus said to believers, the kingdom of God is within you. Well, how did it get there? By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, there is a king, a lord, an authority in our lives. When we are saved, we bow, we submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus. So he's not there as a guest. He is there as a permanent ruler. He is in your heart as your authority, your Lord. So when he comes to us, when the Holy Spirit indwells us, he brings heaven to us. That's what heaven is like. Heaven is like him. So a kingdom is composed of three elements. You have a king, you have the laws of the king, and you have citizens of the kingdom. So when we look at the world, when we look at the kingdom of heaven, we have those things. We have a king, King Jesus, God. And so he has laws of the kingdom that are different from the laws of the kingdom of this world. And then we are citizens of that kingdom, even though we're in the world, because we have received uh, the Holy Spirit through salvation, the Lord Jesus. So Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now that sermon is only three chapters long. But the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. He's describing the lifestyle of those who belong to God's kingdom, who are under God's authority, even though we're in the world. And so the overall theme of Jesus' sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is true righteousness. Now, understand that that is opposed to the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They had their own definition of righteousness. It is righteousness that is of the flesh. It is righteousness of the kingdom of the world. And so their righteousness was based on 
position and pride and obeying rules and uh, impressing people and performance. And so they operated by principles of the world. That's the way the world thinks, isn't it? You know, and so we are in that mindset, but our real mindset is the authority of the Lord and what he says. So even though we're in the world, we are not of the world. God said, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Ain't that so? Because he thinks so differently. The kingdom of heaven is so different. The authority and the rule of God is so different from the authority and rule of the world. And so citizens of God's kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, um, don't function the way the world would expect. You know, uh, for example, think of some of the things that we could think of real quick in Scripture. He says, if you want to have, you give away. Well, the world says, uh-uh. If I want to have more, i got to keep everything I've got. So you've got all of these opposites, all of these paradoxes of mindset from those who are in the kingdom of heaven under the authority of God and the way the world thinks. So God's purposes are only accomplished by God's ways. So citizens in God's kingdom, Christians, believers, are to function to accomplish God's purposes in kingdom ways, not human ways. That's why doing church ought to be very different from doing a business. You know, you operate a business by business principles, but you can't always operate a church like that because God doesn't work like that, right? And so those are the things that he's talking about that I want us to grasp this morning. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, just remember that Jesus is describing kingdom living for us. Kingdom living, kingdom rule. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with this passage that we call the Beatitudes. Uh, they are foundational to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so before we can go on to see what Jesus is saying in the rest of the sermon, we've got to grasp what we call the Beatitudes. Um, there's a lot of discussion. Books have been written on why they're called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes is never written in the Bible. But the simplest thing is to know that these are attitudes to be. Okay? So when you think about that, and we look at these first eight things, then these are attitudes, they're lifestyles. They're things that ought to be permeating the mindset of the kingdom of God. So throughout the Beatitudes, we see the reality of blessedness. We spent a good bit of time on that word last week. Blessedness in the kingdom, uh, we are under his blessing. Once you're in the kingdom of heaven, we are under the blessing of the Lord, under his authority under his protection, under his rule, we are blessed. And we talk about that word. It means um, to be um, contented. I think the Amplified Bible translates it as happy, to be envied. But it's not just worldly happiness. It's deep, divine joy. And so we are joyful in the kingdom. The kingdom is a place of divine joy, of contentment, of blessedness, of peace. So the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the first gospel, in his first recorded sermon, is how to enter the kingdom. So he starts off with, 
This is how you enter the kingdom. Now, there are four sections to the Beatitudes. This, for me, makes them easier to remember. The very first one is our attitude toward ourselves. This is the one we looked at last week, chapter 5 and verse 3. And that's our attitude toward ourselves. Then comes our attitude toward our sins. That is ver chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Then there's our attitude toward the Lord. And that is chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. And then there's our attitude toward the world, which is chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. So the first one, our attitude toward ourselves that we looked at last week is blessed are the poor in spirit. And we looked at what that meant. What does that mean? And, and let's review just for a minute today for those of you who couldn't come last week. But being poor in spirit means that we have no way, no possibility, no capacity to get into the kingdom of heaven on our own. Can't get there. Cannot enter the kingdom of heaven on my own. I don't have the goodness. I don't have the holiness. I don't have the righteousness. I don't have the mindset. So poor in spirit means that we see ourselves as spiritual beggars who have nothing to bring. It's like going to a big covered dish meal and you don't have a dish. Okay? You didn't have anything to take. And I don't let that oversimplify the seriousness of this. But we have no way on our own to enter the kingdom of heaven. Can't get in. And um, the only thing we have to rely on is God's mercy and his provision. So the only way that we can get into the kingdom of heaven is how? Through the Lord Jesus. Through his mercy. Through his sacrifice. Through his gift of salvation. Um, it's like... Um, the New Testament, the prayer the man prayed, where he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all we've got to say. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or um, I think this is the verse of just as I am, uh, nothing in my, no, rock of ages, nothing in my hands I bring simply to that cross I claim. That's all we've got. And that's the only way to get in. It's through the cross of the Lord Jesus. I don't care how good we are. I don't care how good we think we are. We're sinners. And sinners can't get in. Sinners have to have their sin dealt with by the blood of the Lord Jesus before you can get into the kingdom of heaven. So poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Now, he doesn't say poor. Some people want to take that and want to call you blessed if you're starving to death. He doesn't say that. That's not what he's saying here. He said, he didn't say blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay? And so, citizens in heaven are poor in spirit. That's the fundamental characteristic of the citizens of heaven. So, everything follows that follows starts there. That's the very first step. So, there are two bullet points. This makes it easy to remember if you want to jot these down. Number one. There is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from being poor in spirit. There is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from being poor in spirit. And number two, there is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. There is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. So what does that mean? It means to have a correct estimate of myself. I see myself 
correctly. It doesn't mean to be pitiful. It doesn't mean to be uh, spineless, no backbone. It doesn't mean to be poor in things or possessions. It means that I know that I cannot save myself. That I do not have the capacity. I do not have the understanding. I don't have what i got to have to get into heaven. I have to have the sacrificed blood of Christ. I have to have that substitutionary death put to my account. Now that's opposite to the world's attitude, isn't it? Most people think, well, sure, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I think I've shared this with you before. It was pitiful. It broke my heart, and I'm not making fun, but it gives you an idea of how some people think. Many, many, many years ago, years ago, when I was serving on the staff of First Baptist Buchanan, uh, they sent me to Atlanta to uh, take a um, course that they wanted all churches to have and have somebody come back and teach. The course called Continuing Witness Training. And so went to take the course. It was two or three day thing. And one of the things you had to do in that course uh, was go out and visit, knock on doors. And one of the things you were supposed to say is, if God were to ask you today, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, that's a good question to know, because that will tell you a whole lot about a person's understanding so just ask somebody, if somebody, if God were to ask you today, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Now, a poor in spirit person is going to say, what? Because of the blood of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And so I looked at this man, and, and I said, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven today, what would you say? And he thought a minute, and he said, I'm a good man. I worked for the post office 40 years. Mm, darling, there's nobody in the kingdom of heaven with that attitude. Why? Because to be in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? It means I know I can't do anything to get in, so I cry out for the blood of Christ. And so, um, you know, David said, you know... Um, Jesus is dealing here in this first beatitude with our attitude toward ourselves so that we understand that. And so um, it's opposite the world's attitude of self-praise and self-reliance and self-promotion where a poor in spirit person knows, we know our need for a Savior, know our need for the Lord. David said, who am I that you should come unto me? Peter said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now, that was after all those people knew the Lord. I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I need a Savior. And Jesus said, these people are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's beatitude number one. It's not just a one-time event in the life of a child of God. It is a way of life. And there is my attitude about my sin. Okay? So I know. I know that I can't get there. Now here goes the second one. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are all kinds of grief 
in scripture. There are all kinds of grief in the world there in, in my life. And so we all want to run away from sorrow, don't we? Go hide from it. Um, Psalm 55, verse 6, David said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. And he was looking for a way to escape. Um, Abraham wept when his wife died. Um, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 3, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say, Where is your God? He's in agony and tears because he cannot see God in his suffering and his pain. And his heart is just wrenched out. Uh, Timothy wept because of defeat and discouragement. Jeremiah said, oh, that my head was water and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain daughter of my people. And so what the deal was is he couldn't weep enough to get his grief out. Mark 9, <clears throat> the father was weeping when he brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. There were tears of love for his son. Luke 7, a woman came to Jesus and she stood at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Those were tears of devotion and worship. All kinds of sorrow. Jesus wept. Mary Magdalene wept. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to weep. But this beatitude is not talking about that. It's not talking about that kind of general sorrow. Jesus is not saying, oh, blessed are you if your heart is broken. He's not saying, blessed are you if you have lost your spouse. Blessed are you if you have lost a friend, lost a child, lost your home. He's not saying that. He's talking about, now get the context. Always remember in scripture, context rules. Now what's the context? It's kingdom living. Jesus is talking about a specific sorrow that is in the context of kingdom living. And so that you'll remember it, I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And verses 8 through 13. Now, the key verse is number 10. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. Now watch this. This is Paul. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, mourning, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now here it is, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. 
So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. Now here it is. Jesus is talking here about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow does what? Produces repentance. So when he says, blessed are they that mourn, what's he talking about? He said, blessed are they who mourn over their sin. Mourn over their sin. Kingdom living, kingdom mindset. And so godly sorrow is the sorrow that produces repentance. Godly sorrow is always linked to repentance. So the issue here is not mourning over human circumstances. People who have to make that dreaded trip to the funeral home are not blessed. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you are blessed when you mourn, when you understand the mindset of what it is to mourn over your sin. Now look at Jesus' sequence. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so those who are poor in spirit are spiritually bankrupt. Absolutely nothing by which we can claim goodness and righteousness. I am a spiritual beggar. I cannot save myself. Now, look at me. And, and this is something I want you to grasp because most of you in here have been believers for a long time. The longer you're a Christian, the more you know that. That never goes away. It never goes away. The, I know more today that I am a spiritual beggar before the Lord than I knew when I was first saved. The rest of you know that. We learn more. And so Isaiah said, Isaiah, did Isaiah know God? Yeah. And what did he say? My righteousness is as filthy rags. So the more we know him, the better we know him, the more we know how much we need him to be saved or needed him to be saved to start with. So having that poverty of spirit leads to mourning over sin. Mourning over sin. The spiritual beggar says, woe is me, I am undone. There's a deep mourning, a lasting inner mourning over sin. Now, as I was thinking about this and looking at my own mourning over sin, what happens as you know the Lord more and more and you realize what spiritual beggars we are, you understand to be poor in spirit. And then he says, blessed are they that mourn over their sin. Then we don't only mourn over our own sin, do we? And have you ever mourned over the sin of your children? You listen to the news and you mourn over the spirit, the sin of the world. And so what happens to us as we grow to be more like Jesus is we recognize sin quicker and quicker. And we go, oh. And we mourn because it is sin. So the longer you're a Christian, the more you're going to do that. The more you're going to know that. And so... What brings us comfort? He said, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What? Taking it to the cross. Comfort. 
There's the comfort. So I'm going to stay in agony until I take it to the cross. So what do I do? I'm going to come before God in confession, asking for mercy and grace. And when I do that, I'm going to receive comfort. Because his mercy and his grace are unlimited. And that's what he's wanting. He's wanting us to come to him, to bring it to him. So blessed are those who are sad over their sin. Because Jesus is going to heal your heart. And he's going to help you understand that. And the longer you're a Christian, the sadder you're going to be over your sin. You are not going to grow out of it. There's a nagging mourning over sin in us until we repent of it. It's going to be a weight. It's going to be a groaning if you're trying to live in sin in the kingdom of heaven. But there's also that we can repent of our own. I can't repent of yours. But I can grieve over your sin and take it to the Lord and pray that the Lord will show you by way of his Holy Spirit what your sin is. Now, understand, this is not wallowing in self-pity. Get that part. This is godly sorrow where you see your sin, you face your sin, you give your sin to the Lord, you ask him to give you the strength to turn from it. You receive the forgiveness and the joy which he always graciously gives. There we are comforted. So the question I have to ask myself is, does, does sin grieve me? Does sin grieve me? Am I sensitive to sin? Or are there some sins I take pleasure in? Think about it. If I do, what am I going to do? I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to take it to the Lord. And I'm going to say, help me hate this sin the way you hate this sin. I don't hate this sin. I enjoy this sin. So you help me see that sin the way you see it. Because what happens is with all of those little lights throughout the world that are the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom of this world, looking from way off somewhere, you see little lights all over the world. I heard Beth Moore use this years ago, sometimes as an illustration, but here's what she said. Do you ever have lights on your Christmas tree? Remember the old lights that you had, to, you know, and you got dark spots? Lights out, dim lights. That's what happens from this pers perspective of space, looking down on the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, and all of a sudden you see these dark spots, these dim lights. That's what happens when we have pet sins that we don't want to get rid of. So when we mourn over our own sin, mourn over the sins of others, what do we do? We pray. We take them to the Lord and ask for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to come on us. And in all of these situations, and we begin to lay those sins. You know, King David, pray. he confessed the sins of Israel to God. 
he didn't commit the sins that he confessed. But he, conf he took the responsibility of confessing the sins of the nation to God. Somebody's got to do that. So that's a good thing for you. When you see the sins of the nation, confess them to God. Lay them there. Leave them at the cross. You will be comforted. And we don't know what he might do because we're still praying for revival, aren't we? Let's pray. Father, let us grieve over our sin the way you grieve. But at the same time, don't let us leave it there grieving. But rejoice in knowing the cleansing of the blood of the Lord Jesus for all sin, for all time. We thank you for what you did for us. Thank you for saving us. And I pray more than ever that we will have these opportunities during the week to share the gospel with others who are trapped in this bondage, who are misinformed, who are deceived by the enemy, and don't understand what it is to be poor in spirit and mourning over sin. So would you open our minds and our hearts to what you're telling us in the sermon and in the beginning as we Contemplate next week what it is to be blessed as the meek. So go with us and work in our hearts and bring us back together next Sunday rejoicing. We're so grateful to be here and to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Bring somebody with you next week and we'll have twice as many. <laughs>